This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. Before getting to that question, so yeah, what I always sure. say is what happens in the world happens on YouTube. Yeah. And that gives us an enormous responsibility. So yeah. when Russia invades Ukraine on October 7th, those events play out live on YouTube. And we need to make sure that we're taking the most responsible approach to our users who mm-hmm. come to our platform seeking information. We feature thought leaders at all career levels, where we explore, among other things, the many contributions that women make to the fields of international business, national security, foreign policy, and international development. Does having women in positions of power influence the outcomes of decisions in these fields? Why or why not? Join me, Dr. Kathleen McInnes, director of the Smart Women Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies for these incredible conversations. Hi, everyone. I am delighted to be joined today by Karen Corrington, Vice President of Trust and Safety at Google, and Alexander Veach, the Director of Government Affairs and Public Policy at YouTube. So we're here at the Halifax International Security Forum in the cold, rainy, great white north. And I'd love to start the conversation today by learning about your backgrounds. Like what got you into the field of international affairs and national security, public policy? Yeah. Well, it's sort of been the family business. My father was in the military. He was okay. an Air Force pilot. was in Vietnam. Also, my uncles and my cousin. So I started my career as a military pilot. I was in the Air Force as a C-17 pilot. So started my career as a pilot, and I was number nine in the family, but the first woman to go into the military. And that was really what I wanted to do. Spent my early career flying to Iraq and Afghanistan <laughs> in my 20s. And then made a shift to go into Washington to do more national security policy and spent some time at the Pentagon and also Capitol Hill. Yeah. And then... So where in the Pentagon were you? I was in OSD. I was a presidential management fellow from, Mm -hmm. I guess it was 2010 to 2012. Okay. And then ended up on Capitol Hill working for Tim Kaine as his military advisor, which was a lot of fun. Oh my God, what an incredible account. Yeah. What an incredible place. He was great. And Virginia, my home state has a lot of military, so no shortage of things to do and important work Mm -hmm. to do and supporting our constituents, but also supporting the armed services portfolio, which was really, really cool. And then I sort of saw what was going on in technology and got the bug and was like, I see a lot of innovation and change happening. And so I made the switch, but I like to think the through line is really that mission focus of international affairs. And that's Mm -hmm. really what's kept me going throughout my career. Yeah. Yeah. And and Alexander? Sure. Yeah. So I'll pick up where Karen left off, which is talking about the through line. I have always wanted to index toward meaningful work like Karen and also interesting work. And when I was a young person, I wanted to move to Washington to find my fortune like so many people, but really do that meaningful and interesting work. So that led me to spend almost a decade on Capitol Hill, most of that time with Speaker Nancy Pelosi. And then in 2012, going to the Obama administration, where I was a deputy assistant secretary for legislative affairs at the Department of Homeland Security. I was responsible for liaising with the House of Representatives and thought I would stay there through the end of the Obama administration until I got the call that you can never say no to, which is, would you consider coming to the White House? So yes, was, like, yeah, yeah. The president asks you, if, wow, and, and, you, you, you do a thing. <laughs> yeah. And I like the way you described that. It didn't go exactly that way. Um, so I went to the White House for two years, worked partially in national security portfolio and ledger affairs there, and then in 2017 went into the private sector. And I will just say that as somebody who had 
really always thought that meaningful and interesting work was mostly found on the government side. And that is absolutely true. I am here to say that you can also find that in industry mm-hmm. and the private sector. And that yeah. my post-government career has been as interesting and I think as meaningful as as what I did before. Yeah. Well, so I guess that's a great segue into the decisions that you guys wanted to talk to you about. Which is essentially these very pivotal moments in your careers, Karen, your decision to jump from government into this textbook, take the leap. And for you, Alexandra, the decision to be the person at the table. So Karen, if we could start with you, what were the factors, what was leading you to take the jump into the wild west, like from my, from my perspective, the wild west of the private sector? <laughs> Well, like Alexandra, I think being really guided by a mission and the meaningful work and meaningful problems, I've really sought out interesting problems and had questions in my mind of like, what would it be like to work on this? What would it be like to work on Capitol Hill on decisions to go to war? Authorization for use of military force, which I got to work on for Tim Kaine, which was an absolute dream to work on that problem after having served in war. Yeah, And so I started to see what was going on in technology and seeing the innovation that was happening. And this was post-Arab Spring, which I think was around 2011 or so, and seeing, mm-hmm. wow, this is really powerful technology and powerful tools. This is going to change the way we work. It's going to change society. And like, I think they probably need people to help them think through this because this is going to be powerful and challenges and also some really unique opportunities. And so I just, mm-hmm. I think I sort of started with some questions in my mind about what I was seeing going on yeah. out in Silicon Valley. Also asking myself about how government was working. And I really loved how technology thought about designing for users and designing mm-hmm. to solve problems for users, whether it's access to information or connectivity to others. I thought, this is really incredibly powerful. It's changing my own day to day. I also had a wish that government would also adopt some of that. Like sometimes, yeah. you know, in moments, like how can we be more like that, more like technology to, my God, yeah, more like user focused. Like maybe get a little bit less bureaucratically calcified. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so I think for me, it really started with just seeing what was going on and asking those questions. I am not a person that makes quick decisions, especially when it comes to like personal or professional ones. I yeah. started just thinking and asking those questions internally for a while and then having conversations with folks about it as well. But mm-hmm. that's sort of how it all started. Wow. Okay. And then Alexander, you went from supporting folks at the table to being the person at a really big table. Could you tell us a bit about that? Sure. Yeah. So many years staffing hearings, supporting principals at congressional hearings. When I was at DHS, we were the agency that testified the most because of split jurisdiction across Congress. And so spent many years in that first chair immediately behind the principal. And in 2021, after 13 months at Google, though interestingly, never once setting foot in the office because height of the pandemic, we were asked to testify before the Senate Judiciary Committee to talk about algorithms, which is, I actually sort of see that topic as a precursor to some of the anxiety that Congress regular folks feel today about generative AI. And so how algorithms work, how our platforms use them, how we recommend content to our users on YouTube. And just frankly, this was a really scary thing going from being in that first seat behind the principal to sitting at the table, but also a real career-making moment for me. Even changing my own self-perception about what I was capable of, I always say that my favorite kind of situation is one in which 
you rely on uh, the wisdom of teams to prepare and to learn and to think through thorny problems. And then at the end, you go in and you can only count on yourself. Yeah. And that's what testifying is. At the end of the day, you can only rely on yourself. But betting on myself is uh, something I like to do. <laughs> so just the opportunity to tell the company story, but also help policymakers who I respect so much that I devoted much of my professional life to serving Congress, help them make good decisions, help inform their legislative process, inform how they think about things, was just an amazing moment in my career trajectory. Yeah. So we're here at Halifax, the International Security Forum, and your organizations are on the front lines of information, disinformation. This is a very broad question, but what are the key things we should be thinking about when it comes to strategic competition, disinformation, and the role of incredibly powerful search engines? Yeah, I think first and foremost, we think about the company mission and trustworthy, accessible, authoritative information that's going to be helpful to users. Yeah, And I really find in our work that that guides our work each and every day and ensuring that our products, our services are providing that helpfulness and that trustworthy information to users. Mm -hmm. And so then I think about what does that mean in the context of Halifax, where we're talking about whether it's crisis moments or security and safety, it's those guiding principles and then the policies, the capabilities that we have to ensure that that holds really true, whether it's in crisis moments or in things like global elections. Well, how do you see the disinformation environment? How do you guys characterize the problem? Maybe if I could take a, a step sure. back before getting to that question. So yeah, what I sure. always say is what happens in the world happens on YouTube. Yeah. And that gives us an enormous responsibility. So yeah. when Russia invades Ukraine on October 7th, those events play out live on YouTube. And we need to make sure that we're taking the most responsible approach to our users who mm-hmm. come to our platform seeking information. And so there's a couple ways we approach that. So yep. first of all, on YouTube, we have what are called community guidelines. Just because something happens in the world or is thought in the world doesn't mean it belongs on YouTube. We have content policies in place that allow us to remove content in moments like this, whether it's gory conflict, content that promotes hate and harassment. But we also have a responsibility to elevate authoritative information to our users. And that is one of the ways I think that you attack the misinformation problem Mm -hmm. by ensuring that the recommendations that our users receive, the search results that they receive when they're looking for information on YouTube, index toward authoritative, trusted sources, news sources, Mm -hmm. other organizations. And I would say those principles hold true across our products. The way it manifests across products is very different. It's going to look different across YouTube than it might on search. But the authoritative, helpful, trustworthy information is a guiding principle. And then as Alexandra noted, having our content policies in place and the expertise of our teams, which have been doing this for many years globally, Mm -hmm. is then how we enforce those policies overall. We're always thinking across the organization about how to balance what is a natural tension between the freedom of expression and responsibility. Mm -hmm. And I think there is nowhere where that balance is more important than in the national security space and misinformation space. Yeah. Well, and and because misinformation, disinformation is such a critical issue in the national security space. National security isn't just guns and bullets and widgets anymore. It's something much more broad. And you guys are on the front lines. In so many ways. So to conclude our conversation, I'd love your thoughts on whether you feel that your gender as women affected the decisions you took that we've referenced earlier and your leadership styles. And if so, why 
If not, why not? And by the way, guests across the podcast answers very wildly. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's such an interesting question. I think the early part of my career, I was often the only woman in the room, the only woman in the cockpit, the only woman in my pilot training class. When I got to the Pentagon, I was the only woman in my group of fellows. And I sort of looked around and said, what has happened in the past 10 years? Where's the progress I've heard so much about? At the Mm -hmm. same time, though, I will say, I think that prepared me to really know myself and often be really thoughtful about the role that I played Mm -hmm. and be really deliberate about the leadership role that I took. Because I knew that often if I was vocal, it was scrutinized, you know? And so being in those spaces, it kind of felt like being in in a fishbowl in the military. I will say I have a core group of friends, women pilots, who I still rely on for a lot of advice. And they are some of the few that really understand that same experience. But I think that kind of scrutiny and feeling a little bit lonely early in my career was like, okay, well, I'm really going to trust myself, as you said, and I'm going to bet on myself and I'm going to make hard decisions or I'm going to take risks or I'm going to take chances because really, how hard can it be? Yeah. (laughs) And also this I'm going to learn something when I step yeah. outside of my comfort zone because I was like, I'm already outside of my comfort zone each and every day. I'm learning a ton. I'm learning a ton about me. And most importantly, I'm contributing in a way that is really important and meaningful coming back to that problem solving notion. So I do think that that early situation has shaped for me going forward the willingness to take bigger risks bet mm-hmm. on myself, as you mentioned, too, and say like, okay, what's the worst that can happen? I'm going to take a risk here. I'm going to take a leap across industries, across the country with no job. And I'm going to see how it works out, but I'm going to learn something. It's going to be hard, but I'm going to learn it. And I do think that's, that shaped me in that way. So I always say I, I sort of had an opposite experience from Karen in that I had the privilege of working for exclusively amazing, strong female leaders until pretty late in my career. So I started my time on the Hill with Senator Barbara Mikulski, trailblazing oh, first Democratic yeah. woman elected in her own right. I'm from Maryland. Oh, that you know, <laughs> you know, you're at BAM, as they say. And then Speaker Pelosi, I then went to the Department of Homeland Security and worked for Secretary Janet Napolitano. And so when Secretary Jay Johnson was confirmed in 2013 and I was in my mid-30s, I said to him, I just want you to know you're the first man I've ever worked for. (laughs) Wow. his response was beautiful. He said, America, what a great country. But so I had these really amazing examples and a diversity of what strong female leadership looks like. I will say, though, it has been my experience that sometimes women have to work harder to prove themselves. I Mm -hmm. think that is probably especially true in the national security space and the law enforcement space where I have worked. And if there is a benefit to that fundamental unfairness, and I, I don't want to suggest it's anything other than fundamentally unfair, I do think that that has helped me as a woman to level up as a professional and just know that the standards are higher and work to meet and exceed them. I will also say as a a woman leader at a tech company, though in the, what I like to call the liberal arts wing of the tech company, (laughs) um, it's probably even harder on the engineering side. I am very conscious of trying to make sure that I have an inclusive leadership style that helps bring up a diverse group of new leaders with me. And I have had the benefit of both female and male principles who did that for me. I love that. I would love to add, I mean, I think what you touched on early on about the teamwork element has been there throughout my career, whether it's military, government, as you noted, or in tech. And I do think in national security in Washington, there's been 
more female leadership and certainly mentors that I've had the benefit of learning from. You mentioned Janine Davidson, who's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. I had the unique opportunity to be a teaching assistant for Secretary Albright in grad school. And <laughs> she has championed what? women throughout her career and she's phenomenal, as well as the male leaders who have championed more diversity in their offices yeah. and bringing women up. And I'll say too, I've experienced more, this is probably not the perception of tech, but I've experienced a lot of female leaders really strong leaders in their roles and really diverse teams, mm -hmm. diverse global teams in these tech companies that are working together to solve hard problems. That's just phenomenal. And I think some of the magic of Google and YouTube is the global nature, the diversity of the teams and bringing those teams together to solve the hard problems. And if yeah. I could just add one thing, one of my strengths that I like to think of is I, I have good focus, can get a lot done in whatever amount of time. I will say that that has only increased by having children. <laughs> and that, oh, sing it. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm in the blur, right? I don't even know. I've got two under two. Oh, you are really. I'm in the thick of it. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So I have yeah. a four and a half year old and a one year old, one and a half year old, and also feel yeah. like that. <laughs> nope. Yeah. Um, no. But I, I really feel badly saying that to you. Uh, it's blurrier over there. I don't <laughs> think blur goes away. I have a five and a seven year old. And I still feel blurry. <laughs> I hate to say it. Blurgly gets a little clearer. Yeah, okay, okay. Well, what I would say to you and to other women who may be feeling blurry or may be thinking about what shape they want their families to take, I will say that being a mother has made me a better professional and has strengthened my focus, strengthened my effectiveness, and I also feel very grateful to work in a place where I think that perspective of having a family and family obligations is really valued. Mm-hmm, mm -hmm. absolutely. That's true. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us and thank you for everything you're doing. What thank a treat. You. Yeah, thank thanks you. for hosting. Wow. Subscribe to the Smart Women Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to great content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, or you can follow me on Twitter at KJ McInnes1. Thanks for listening and join us next time.